All right, Philemon and verse 8. So what we have here is our second major section in the book. Last time, I think it was two weeks ago, last time we studied Paul's praise for Philemon. This week, uh, we're looking at verse 8 down to verse 17, and it's the plea for Onesimus, or Paul's plea for Onesimus. And I'm on uh, muscle relaxers right now. So I have dry mouth, something terrible. So I'm probably going to drink this whole bottle of water while I'm standing up here. And just please bear with me and try not to let it be a distraction. But um, I have these muscle relaxers and I'm on them for a few more days. And I, I don't like taking this kind of stuff or pain medication, but it is, it is helping. So there in verse 8, uh, notice what Paul says there. Wherefore? Though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Simply put there, Paul's saying, I'm not going to enjoin you, but rather I'm going to beseech you. Two different words, two different ways of going at this thing. So now Paul comes to the main point in purpose of this little letter, the letter to Philemon. He wants Philemon to forgive his runaway slave and receive him back as a brother in Christ and also to receive him back to continue to serve Philemon as a slave. So we need to look at this in the Bible as we're getting started, what the Bible has to say about slavery, okay? Here's this Onesimus. He ran away from his Christian slave master, Philemon. And he ran away and evidently took some of his, his, his goods or took something from him. Maybe just stole uh, time from him. But uh, he ran away and then he ended up running into Paul in God's providence. And you know what providence is? It's God providing for your needs. Providence. He ran into Paul, and it was no accident, and Paul ended up leading him to the Lord. And then he said to him, he said, uh, Onesimus, you've got to get right on this thing, and you need to go back to your master and make this thing right as a Christian. So in, in salvation, there's repentance, right, and, and faith in Jesus Christ. But if there's things that you've done wrong to folks, you ought to make restitution after getting saved, or you ought to at least go back and say, I apologize for the way that I was. That's one of the good principles that's from this book. But look at, um, hold your place there and look at 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, look at what Paul says about slavery. Back in first century Rome, four out of five men were slaves. That's right. You, you heard it right. Four out of five men were slaves. There were millions of slaves in first century Rome, and they weren't all black. They were every different. Uh, all the they yeah, all the tribes and the lands that they'd conquered. Yes, and so they would bring them into subjection and say, "Now you serve us." Yep. And that, it's just the reality of what it was. 
And to be a slave in first century Rome was uh, you were you were lower than the lowest rung on the ladder. You and you did not you weren't treated well, and uh, it was a horrible situation to be in. Yeah, and there were there were good masters who treated their slaves well, and then there were the ones who didn't. Um, so, but if you got in trouble, there was no one to defend you. It was just it was a uh, a lot. Well, let's just look at First Corinthians. 7 verse 20 this is what paul said to do if you get saved and you're a slave which most likely most of the churches were filled with slaves let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called so if you are a slave when you get saved stay that way abide in that calling art thou art thou called being a servant care not for it but if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. So Paul's saying if you can become free, if you can find somebody who will pay the money to free you from it, then go ahead and do it. Or if somehow you can earn the money and, and buy your freedom, well, then go ahead and do it, is what Paul is saying. But if not, then use it uh, rather. Use your position as a servant to be a witness there. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. So Paul is saying, really, we're all servants. It's just who you're serving. You're going to have to serve somebody, right? It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So Paul is saying, use it either way, and then use it to be a witness. And just remember, you're, if you're saved, you're really the Lord's servant. You're bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Look also at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So you're going to go to the right. You've got 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hey, Lily, I'm going to have to ask you to go back there, okay? You're not doing anything wrong, but I'm going to have you, yeah, and you can sit there. There you go. Yeah, bye-bye. You're not doing anything wrong. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of honor. You see, so Paul says to the servants, honor your master. Now, he didn't tell them to run away, and he did not tell them to protest. And Paul did not lead in a protest against slavery. It might be shocking to you to know that, but he didn't. Now, does that mean that Paul was for slavery? No, it just meant that the entire known world was millions of slaves. Four out of five men are slaves. Paul's job was not to try to make a political, to politically reform Rome. Paul's job was to preach the gospel. And then the gospel touches every area of our lives. So Paul would just tell them, here's how to conduct yourself as a servant. And if you can get free, get free. But if not, honor your master. You see, worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. As a matter of fact, if you started just laying up in bed and not doing your job, you would be blaspheming the doctrine of God. 
if you did that. You'd be a bad witness. So verse 2, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. So both the Christian uh, master and the Christian slave working together, because they are brethren, but rather do them service. So don't despise them because they're a Christian master, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. You see, Paul told Timothy, look, this is what you're supposed to teach and exhort in the churches in first century Rome. Tell, tell the Christian master to take good care of his servants. Tell the Christian servants to honor their master, whether they're saved or not, to honor them and to do good service unto them, but do it unto the Lord, right? So that's what was happening in first century Rome. The gospel does improve any, any uh, land or any uh, society. The gospel does improve it. But Paul's job, again, was not to be a reformer of the political situation, but to be a witness. And Paul thought Jesus is coming back any time. So here's the important thing, guys. You're saved, be a light, be a good servant. You're saved, you're a master, be a good master, and start witnessing to as much as you can before the Lord comes back. That's the way Paul looked at it. And um, now he had Philemon, who was a servant, a runaway slave, and he got saved. Uh, or um, Excuse me, Onesimus. And then he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, who is a Christian master, you see, and he's sending him back to serve. Now, I didn't say that to, to say one thing or another about slavery. I think it's awful what happened in this country uh, to a lot of the slaves. Um, I think it's, it's terrible, and it's a black eye on our country. Um, however, it happened, okay? And uh, if anybody in this world was ever abused, uh, the, the, the blacks of this world, they were abused something terrible, but not as much as the Jews. Uh, and you won't hear a thing about that on the news. You know why? Because they're anti-Semitic. But the people who have gotten the worst treatment in this world, bar none, is the Jew. But you won't hear a thing about it because they're only telling you what you want to hear. Indians, yes, sir, yeah. I feel the same way about the Indians. It was wrong what they did to them. Yep. And uh, so, but here's the thing. You know, what, what is it, your responsibility uh, to the Lord in the calling that you're in, right? That's what Paul's looking at. Now, verse 8. Verse 8 begins with, wherefore, wherefore, all right? Wherefore is looking back to something. Paul is saying wherefore. He's saying because of what I previously said in verse 5 about Philemon. Philemon uh, was giving and gracious. Philemon was loving and full of faith. That's what Paul just got through saying about Philemon. So he says, wherefore, because your heart is so giving and gracious, because you're so loving and full of faith, wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee being such an one as Paul the aged. Now, what is happening here is that Paul is saying, because of the man that you are, Philemon, because of your character, I know I can count on you to do the right thing, to do what is convenient, what is fitting, what is right. I know I can count on you to do this, Paul's saying, and I'm trusting in your character. And Paul says, I might, though I might be much bold, 
that boldness that Paul refers to in verse 8 is his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to enjoin. And another word for that is command. To enjoin or command. But I'm going to say this. He says, I might be much bold because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ over the churches that I could command you to take Onesimus back and to forgive him. But Paul says, I'm not going to do it that way. But let me tell you this. Command is a little bit too strong of a word. Okay? So a, a better word for it would be, I could give you an order. Or I could, I, could, uh, I could instruct you with all the authority of an apostle and tell you this is what you need to do in this situation. Yeah. But command is too strong. That's why it's not translated command. The word that's there in other places is translated command, but not here. See, that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the blessing of having the King James Bible, is the English words that they put in tell you what the Greek says. And you can't read Greek, can you? No, and it's a dead language. This Koine Greek that it was written in originally, it's a dead language now. But what you have here is you have exactly what the Greek says. It's not as strong as saying command. It's like this. Paul's saying, I could pull rank on you if I wanted to, because I'm an apostle. I outrank you, even though you're a master, you know, I outrank you. So Paul is saying that uh, I could just give you an order and say, you have to do what I want you to do and pull rank on you. You have to do what I want you to do. And uh, but Paul's not going to do that. He's going to take another route in dealing with him. It reminds me of this, uh, this second lieutenant that I read about. You know, a second lieutenant, they call them a butter bar. They're, they're just young lieutenants right out of college, right out of boot camp. And this second lieutenant was uh, brand spanking new in the 82nd Division there in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And he's trying to get himself a soda out of the, the pop machine. And he doesn't have the correct change, so a private walks by. And he says to the private, he says, uh, Soldier, you have change for a dollar? And that, that private was looking, he's, he's kind of thinking, yeah, actually, I think I do. I think I do. I, let me look in here. I think I do have enough change. Hold on a minute. And he says, soldier, is that any way to, <laughs> to address a, uh, a commanding officer? Let's try this again. And he said, soldier, you have change for a dollar. And, the, and he, that private uh, stood at attention, stood up real straight with a smart look on his face. He says, no, sir. <laughs> But he outranked him. But uh, he didn't have the respect he needed, did he? Paul had the respect. Paul had the rank. But you know what he chose? He chose to do it a different way. He says, I could do it this way, verse 8. Yet, in verse 9, for love's sake, I rather beseech thee. So for love's sake, I'm going to make my plea. I'm going to make my request. I'm going to plead with you on the basis of love. Maybe he's talking about on the basis of your love for me, because Paul had led him to Christ. Maybe he's saying on the basis of my love for you. Or he might be saying on the basis of our love for Christ, our common love for Christ. In Christian love, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. So he takes the high road. 
and he reaches his desired end this way, he tugs at the heartstrings of Philemon, thank you. And he pleads with him with these words. You know what he's saying? He's saying that obedience that's motivated by a sense of duty is not what I'm going for here. Paul was going for obedience that was motivated by love or out of love. And that would accomplish several things for what Paul was wanting. So you could read it like this. Back up in verse 8, wherefore, and go all the way down to verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus. That's what Paul is really saying. And, and it would accomplish several things. Just think about it. Everything that you do, uh, have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I really do this? Why do I come to church? Why do I feel uh, an obligation to read my Bible every day? Why do, why do I pray for other believers? Why do I teach a Sunday school class? Why do I volunteer for nursery or run the soundboard? Or why do I give money in the plate when it comes by? Are you doing it just out of a cold sense of duty? Or are you doing it for a higher reason? Are you doing it out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's what really counts, you know? Only what's done for Christ will last. So this is what he would accomplish. The runaway slave would be able to return to a warm, loving, receptive master and brother in Christ. Imagine if Paul said, I'm pulling rank on you, and this is my order, and I want you to do it. Then he might resent it. And when Onesimus returns, and, and really Onesimus is standing right in front of Philemon, Philemon's reading the letter, and he's just standing there waiting to see what's going to happen to him. Well, there might not have been a good working relationship there anymore. It might have been... Uh, you know, a, a bad situation. Secondly, it's better to do a thing out of love than just a cold sense of duty. If you look at verse 14, verse 14, but without thy mind would I do nothing, without asking him about it first, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, because you have to do it, but willingly. You see, not just out of sense of duty, but you're doing it because you want to do it, out of love. So, have you ever caught yourself saying, I've got to go to church? I have, do we have to go to church? We have to go to church. Somebody says, can you come over and do this on Wednesday? No, I have to go to church. We ought to say, I know this is kind of nitpicking, we ought to say, I get to go to church. Just tell them, I'm going to church. That's my church night. I need, I need the Bible study. You know, I need prayer. So, I get to do it in Jesus' name, to do it willingly. Don't you know that God loves a cheerful giver? Amen? That's somebody who's happy about giving. Now, somebody who gives out a necessity, you know, and it's almost like the, the, when the usher walks by, they almost got to pull that envelope out of their hand and put it into the plate. You know, they don't want to let it go. God wants a cheerful giver that gives willingly and do it as unto the Lord. Now, the third thing that he could accomplish this way is Paul could have robbed Philemon of a blessing, if you think about it, because... Uh, Philemon would not have had the blessing of just doing what was right. Of doing what was right in Christian love. And then also, if, um, let's say, you know, if, if, I, if I were to see somebody in church and say, would you teach Sunday school? Well, I don't really like Sunday school, but I put them on a guilt trip and I say, you know, what about these kids coming in here? You know, and they need somebody and this kind of thing. And, and if I try to make somebody do something, 
Or if I say, would you get up here and lead singing? Well, I don't really want to lead singing. And every time they get up there, they're doing it just because the preacher wanted them to, but they're doing it grudgingly. They're doing it out of necessity. You know, same thing being called to be a clerk or to be anything else. But Paul said, I want you to do it because it's right, and I want you to do it willingly out of love. And then, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, then you'll have something to show for. Because, like uh, I was talking to the students in eschatology class, and I was telling them, I said, in most churches in America, just take the average mainline evangelical church, people don't even understand why they're even going to church. They don't understand what the Christian life is all about. They think that the Christian life is just, it's the, you know, I just, I try to behave myself so that God will bless me, you know, and the Christian life is all about just living a good life. And that's not what it's about. The Christian life is all about serving the Lord. You get saved, you're saved to serve, and at the end of your life, which is a very brief time, God is going to reward you for what you've done, if you've done it willingly for Jesus out of love. But not if you've done it grudgingly and not wanted to do it, but just did it because you felt guilted into it. You see, at the end of your life, you're going to go through the judgment seat of Christ. Listen, Jesus said, he, he's going to say to some people, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, he's not just throwing that out to everybody. It's only the people who really was a good and faithful servant, the person who really was. Another thing, he, he, all of his parables, you know, his parables, he talks about giving this guy a talent, giving this guy five talents, this guy ten talents. And Jesus praised the person who went out and took what he gave them and used it and multiplied it and came back with more. And the same thing is going to happen with the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord is going to praise some people for actually getting serious about serving him and taking all of their resources, all their talents, all of their abilities, and using that to do as much for the Lord as they possibly could during their life. You ever heard the, uh, the expression that accusations harden the will, but questions convict? You ever heard that? When you're dealing with people... Rather than making accusations or telling them to do this, do this, do that, uh, attitude, uh, accusations condemn, and then questions convict. Yes. Harden the will is what I said. Okay, condemns and hardens the will. Paul was, he was a tactful person. He didn't just command him to do the thing. He, he pled with him. And to move people not saying you need to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, but to motivate them in another way is, is a higher plane, a higher way to go. And so Paul does this, and, and it's very, it's incredible. But as I thought about it, I, I thought about it as being a leader, being a leader in the home uh, for my family, being a leader at church. I thought I need to sit and meditate on these things. So he says in verse 10, I beseech thee, now Paul makes his request by listing several considerations that will help Philemon make the right decision. So in other words, when dealing with people, uh, especially teenagers, I think, like children, from what I've read from uh, J.C. Ryle, children are just, you tell them, this is what you do here. When you're done with that, do that. And then at this time, we do this. And I need you to come inside. I need you to come over here and stand by me, hold my hand. And if they say why, you don't tell them why, because they're children. They need to learn to obey what uh, the authority says. But when they get to be teenagers, 
then uh, J.C. Ryle, in his little book, To Train Up a Child, he says that when they become teenagers, then you can start giving them a little bit more of the why we do things. And Paul was telling Philemon, this is why it's wise to make this decision, to do the right thing. You see, he's discipling him. It's like when a preacher, uh, a pastor, brings in a younger man, maybe an intern. He brings in this younger man, and he says, this is what needs to be done. And uh, that younger man should say, why do you do things that way? Just watching the older man, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And then listen to the reasons of why this older preacher does the things the way that he does. And you start to learn the motivations, the reasoning behind it. And just Paul was just a, he's just a, a gentleman in this and a master at it, giving him the, these reasons. So the first reason is in verse 10, he was Paul's son. He says, I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So he says, he's my son. Meaning that he was his spiritual son in the faith. Now, look at 1 Timothy. Paul was Onesimus' spiritual father. So 1 Timothy, it's just back just a couple of pages. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This does not give us license to call a priest father. Okay? But he was his spiritual father and Onesimus was a spiritual son in the faith. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Timothy was also a spiritual son of Paul's. Unto Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith. You see that? So people say, this is my proof text. This is why I call uh, a priest father. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians. So you go back quite a ways there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have the Pew Bible, it's going to be 1,608. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul was a spiritual father to these men, and they were his spiritual sons in the faith. Verse 15. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, Yet have ye not many fathers, Paul saying, ye have one, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Would you look at that? You know what Paul said? How are you born again? How are you begotten? How does that happen? Somebody preaches the gospel, okay? You hear the gospel and respond to it with a heart of belief. When that happens, the Holy Spirit uses... The uh, Holy Scriptures, the gospel is the word of God, uses that. The seed of the word goes down into the heart and produces spiritual life. You're born again. Your dead spirit is quickened and born again. How does it happen? Preaching the gospel, not water, baptism, but preaching the gospel. So Paul went into towns. He would preach the gospel in the synagogues, preach the gospel in the marketplaces. And there were some who heard and believed. And followed Paul, and then there were others who didn't. And the ones who heard and believed were born again, were begotten by the Spirit. And Paul said, I have partial credit in somebody receiving the new birth. This verse here, it doesn't say that the Spirit 
begot them. Paul says, I have begotten you. So Paul, a man, has partial credit. Somebody says, you can't save anybody. And that's true. And I say that from time to time. But listen, God is a, he, he works along with you and you're like a co-worker or a co-laborer together with him in bringing souls to Christ. You see? So Paul says, I've begotten you through the gospel. That makes me your spiritual father. But you'll never find one time in either the gospels or in Paul's writings where anybody ever calls Paul father. You're not supposed to do it because Jesus said that uh, call no man, uh, Matthew 23, verse 9, call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. And when he said that, he was saying call no man rabbi or master or teacher. He's saying don't let somebody who is a spiritual leader in your life put themselves up on another plane than you and you call them by this religious title and treat them like they are something more than what they actually are. Because Paul taught that all believers were priests. It's a priesthood of the believer. We're all priests unto God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Not supposed to call any man father because that's what the pagans did. Okay? So Paul said, this is my spiritual son. And that's the first reason why you ought to receive him. The second reason is in verse 11 which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. He's living up to his name. You know what Onesimus means? The, the name Onesimus means profitable. So he's actually living up to his name. It was kind of a play on, on words, and uh, he's saying he's not the person he used to be. Can you imagine a slave named uh, Profitable uh, taking your stuff and running away, <laughs> quitting on the job? Well, he was unprofitable, Paul says, but now he is profitable. And this is the purpose of our study through, Phil, through Philemon. We're learning how to be a profitable Christian. So, so far, if you've, if you've caught it, we talked about prayer. Paul's prayer life. We talked about, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about praying through your prayer list. Talked about how big Paul's prayer list must have been. But he said, I pray daily for you. If you want to be a profitable Christian, listen, you need to get serious about prayer. We just, we play around with this thing. We're all just playing around most of the time. But God help us. God stir our hearts up to get serious about prayer and to be profitable Christians. You see, Jesus said, I gave this one one talent, gave this one five talents. And the one who multiplied it and earned on top of their five talents, earned more, Jesus said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. They had earnings. They multiplied what he gave to them. They were profitable. But listen, nothing will happen unless it's first prayed over. Uh, you, you, not, you accomplish nothing for Christ without prayer, okay? So we learned about prayer. We learned tonight about the judgment seat of Christ. We learned why you're here. What is the Lord doing with, you know, the little time that he gives to each one of us? What does he expect for us to do? He expects us to have the long view, to live for eternity, see people as souls, 
Don't see them as black and white, tall or short, big or little, young or old, famous or not famous, uh, important and uh, affluent or, you know, the, the nobodies down in the trailer park. He said, don't look at it like that. Look at them all as souls and just be busy doing something for Christ. So hey, listen, listen, this is what I'm saying. If you don't have a ministry right now, do you have a ministry? If you don't, you need to get one. Everybody is in the ministry. It's not just me. Now, I am in the ministry, and it's a separate one. It's a calling to preach and to pastor a church. But everybody is in the ministry. If you don't have a ministry, get one. Get one. Okay? Just like I talked about last week, the lady who was... Uh, with Parkinson's disease and having other troubles as well, she's not able to get out and go like she used to. But you know what she used to do? She used to go to the fairs, multiple fairs, and go to these county fairs and s sit inside of a tent that said Amazing Grace Missions on it. And uh, her husband would stand out there and pass out tracks to all the pastors by. And some of them would stop and they had a box there that says three things that God can't do. And they'd say, there's nothing that God can't do. You're, you're you know... What are, you, what are you, you trying to fool me or something? And they'll say, no, I can show you three things that God can't do. And they'd show them these things and say, listen, you know what God can't do? God can't allow a sinner into heaven. Uh, you can't, if you die in your sins, you can't go to heaven. God can't do it because he won't allow sin into heaven. Then get him underneath the tent, get him to sit down and go through the Bible and lead him to Christ. She had been busy for years doing that with her husband. She had a ministry. She also traveled and played the bass guitar, and her husband played the guitar and sang and still combed his hair like Elvis all these years later. But now, you know what she has? She has the very best ministry. She has a prayer ministry, and she does pray. So get a ministry. But, and then when you serve the Lord, make sure you're doing it for the right motive. Paul says the right motive is out of love, to do it willingly because it's the right thing to do. Don't do it because you have to do it. Do it because it's right to do it. And uh, Paul says here, he's living up to his name now. So he's turned his life around. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.17... He was a changed person. He was running... From his master, he didn't know it, but he was running from God. But you can't outrun God, and God caught up with him. And the hounds of heaven were on his trail. And then he ran into Paul and got saved. And when he got saved, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he was a new creature. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, I'd mark this one. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know what that says? If you're really in Christ, if you've been born again, you are a new creature. There has been a change. Now, some Bibles, many of the new Bibles will say a new creation. That's a bad translation. New creature. They say a new creation so that you link it up spiritually to Revelation chapter 20 and uh, 21, where it says there's a new heaven and a new earth, the new creation. And they link it up to there, and that would lead you to believe that the new creation is a spiritual thing. 
and that you are spiritually a part of this new creation. But the new creation is inhabited by creatures who inhabit the creation. And the new creature that you are, that means your nature has been changed. Your nature. So when you get saved, your old Adamic nature, the old man, the old self, he's still in there very much alive, but now you have a new man inside, and that is Jesus Christ living in you. He wants to live his life through you. You have a new nature that you never had before. So when a person's saved, they find out that they start to love things that they never loved before, and they start to hate things that they used to love. You're a new creature. Now, that doesn't mean that all at once your life is going to change and you're going to become sinless and, and live a holy life. That does not mean that. But it means old things have passed away. The, the old actions, the old attitudes that you used to have, those things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Your life is new and different now, but you're just as capable as ever of sinning. It does not mean that you won't sin. As a matter of fact, if you don't fight it, you will sin. But you're a new creature. So people, some people, they'll try to talk them out of their salvation. They'll say, look, if your life didn't tra- change dramatically like mine, well, you're not saved. And then they start saying, well, I know I, sometimes when I'm praying, I think about things that I should not be thinking about. And I wonder where that thing came from. And uh, I must not be saved. Or they'll say, yeah, well, I got mad and lost my temper and blew up and said some things I shouldn't have said, and I must not be saved. No, you're just as capable of doing all those things that you used to do. But now you have a change in your life, and something is different, and now you love Jesus, you love learning from the Bible, you love being around Christian people, you're truly happy when you are just, you have Christ at the center of your life. And when you move Christ out of the center of your life, and you start to try to run your own life, you're one of the most miserable people to be around. You see, you, you can sin just like you always did, but you won't be able to enjoy it anymore. It'll give you a real bad conscience. So you're a new creature, and Onesimus was a new creature, and he was, he was uh, mentored and discipled by Paul, and Paul was sending him to do things for him, so he was very profitable. And thirdly, Paul said, here's another reason to take him back, receive him as myself, verse 12. Receive him as myself. Uh, Philemon. So, uh, verse 17, rather. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Paul said, just, just if it, like it was me, receive him. And then fourthly, for your own benefit, he said in verse 14. But without thy mind would I do nothing that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. So here's an opportunity for Christian growth. Here's an opportunity for just being reconciled to, to a sinning brother and being reconciled to somebody and making restitution for the wrong that's done. That's what Onesimus got to do. And then Philemon would get to fulfill the, the, the will of God by suffering the wrong. We'll have to stop here tonight by suffering the wrong. As a Christian, you're going to be wronged by people. People are going to do things to you, and they're going to put you through things, and you're going to be wronged. And the Bible teaching is to suffer it, to just allow it, 
put up with it. Uh, Christians are going to wrong you. Christians in your own church. Paul said, suffer the wrong. Paul said, you know, you think you're so important that you've got your rights. And uh, Paul said, no, just suffer the wrong and, and show grace to undeserving people. You know, somebody said we're never more like God than when we forgive. But I might, I might add that we're never more like Christ than when we show grace to people who don't deserve it. Onesimus is coming back, and he does not deserve to be taken back, right? He does not deserve to have his place again as a servant and being cared for. You don't deserve that. A runaway slave could be, uh, could be killed as capital punishment for doing that, especially running away and, and stealing is what I read. It was uh, something that you could be crucified for. But he said, instead of, instead of punishing him, you know, maybe he thought that I'm going to get somebody to take the cat of nine tails and just tear him up. Instead of doing that, he said, suffer the wrong, do it for Jesus' sake, and show grace to somebody who's undeserving. Can you think of somebody else who was like that? Well, my father in heaven, I know there was a time when I was a prodigal son and I came back to the father's house. And you know what he did? He blessed me and gave me more than I lost when I was a prodigal. He gave me more than I ever have had. And he's allowed me to do more for him than what I thought I was going to get to do. And you know what that does to me? That just makes me more and more just feel humble underneath that. Humbled before the Lord. Humbled before his grace and his love. So the thing is, is that when somebody in the church, I'm talking about how to be a profitable Christian, when somebody in the church wrongs you, how are you supposed to handle it? It's okay to tell them what they did, that there's nothing wrong with that, but then just suffer the wrong. Just put up with it. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for uh, this time in the Word of God. I thank you for getting me through this. And Lord, um, we want to be profitable Christians. And I want to pastor a church filled with profitable Christians. And Lord, um, I pray that you'd help all of us to have a ministry, to have something that we do. And it doesn't have to be a big thing, but just something that we do for you. And Lord, I pray that you'd give all of us just something that we do for you that's Maybe nobody else knows about, and we just do it for you. And I pray within this church, Lord, that you'd help us to be busy serving you so that when you do come back, that we will be able to look you in the face and tell you that we were trying to do everything that we could to spread the gospel and to be lights in this dark world. And Lord, I pray for uh, the young people that are here tonight. Lord, uh, they're up against so much. I pray that they won't go out into the world and waste precious years of their lives, but that they'd find your will early and seek to do it. And Lord, there's so much joy in serving Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us. And Lord, that we'd be able to do your will. Bring us back to church on Sunday morning, the next appointed time. And uh, we'll be sure to give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.